This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. timeline covering the career of the great iconic toby hooper one thing that you can say about his body of work is it is chock full of variety uh there's a lot of different themes and stories going on here he never really stayed in one wheelhouse beyond that of horror so you know you had Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of course, Ben. Eaten Alive, kind of a similar movie. But then you move on to his remake of, or his uh, TV adaptation of Salem's Lot, and you get this, like, epic vampire long-form story that's almost like a shout-out to Nosferatu while adapting Stephen King. And then you get fucking poltergeist uh which is you know this amazing spielberg supernatural movie about a haunted house and then you get naked space vampires with life force and then you get this movie we now go into a remake of a campy 50s sci-fi movie and we're talking about Invaders from Mars from 1986 here on this week's episode of Seeking Human Victims. I am your host, the maniacal minister of the occult, the high priest of the coven of the goat and the original motherfucker, the Rev. Dan Wilson, and I am here with my invaders from Mars. Welcome first, Dreamboat Annie. I don't know. People getting sucked under the sand? (laughs) I prefer to be sucked above the sand. (laughs) And returning to the show after a couple of weeks absence he's back folks uh, we don't know what he did with grizz but he's back the one the only the great muji these things they're huge ugly slimy giant mr potato heads <laughs> these things they're huge. <laughs> fuck so this is the first time watch for me I don't know about you guys, but it was the first time watch for me. Um, Also, like, I've seen clips of the original. Like, I think it was one of the many movies that was like footage of it got kind of reused in shows on like Nickelodeon and shit in the 80s and 90s is like stock footage. Kind of like the original Blob and other sci-fi horror films of that time. 
but I never saw the original one in full and never saw this one, though it uh, certainly has a familiar theme. I've definitely seen this movie before because they used to show it on TV a lot, but I didn't remember like the plot or anything like that. Although, yeah, once you get into it, the plot is quite familiar. Um, but there were a couple scenes that I saw in it that I definitely remember. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe it is the same. Maybe I fucking just caught the highlights on other shows, too. But there was definitely some stuff I recognized. And uh, I have no frame of reference for this movie prior to this watching. Uh, obviously. Usually the case, but she'll pop up and surprise you every now and again. So, yeah. Um, no musical guests this week. Uh, we'll be having... Mike Giuliano and company from Horror Pain Gore Death Productions back on the show. Hopefully next week, waiting on some uh, some new releases from them to be able to drop here for you and share some great tunes on Seeking Human Victims. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and dig on into that alien spaceship butthole. We're going to look at invaders from Mars on the Coroner's Report. The Coroner's Report. All right, so if you joined us last week, you know that Toby Hooper, after the success of Poltergeist, signed a three-picture deal with the Israeli-financed Canon Pictures uh, with uh, Golan and Globus. And so this would be the second film in that three-picture deal. Um, The production was instigated by a dude named Wade Williams, who was a millionaire exhibitor and playboy, a science fiction film fan, and sometimes writer, producer, and director. He actually reissued the original film in 1978 after purchasing the copy to the property. And so Invaders from Mars was fresh in the public mind once again. And he also was one of the financiers of this remake that ultimately saw light of day in 1986. As I mentioned, it was the second film in Toby Hooper's deal with Canon Films and a remake of the original film from 1953. So that was uh, the original release coming all the way back 30 plus years later, uh, focusing on some of those similar themes from the 50 sci-fi world the theme of the body snatcher of course invasion of the body snatchers being the most famous of those but that's very prevalent in alien horror we see it in this movie we've of course mentioned invasion of the body snatchers but even you know more modern movies like the faculty um there's there's a ton of films with that body snatcher motif um executed albeit a little bit differently but this one certainly had its own spin on it yeah, man, this movie, like, the plot and everything, like, it it definitely, like, seemed like, you know, it's during a time where these movies were really popular, they just kind of took the most basic, like, aliens have landed, only the kid knows, and then, you know, did something, like, a little bit different with it. Yeah, they actually used the original screenplay from the 1953 film and just reworked that. Uh, screenplay by Richard Blake um, Like I said Just a second ago is I didn't have a frame of reference For 
this movie before this watch through, but I can vouch for that fact because one thing I like to do, even though we watch the movie is right before we record, I go over the plot synopsis to remind myself of details. And I accidentally read the plot synopsis for the 1950s version and didn't realize it until I was all the way through it. So true remake. Yeah. And in the most literal sense, um, cinematography was handled by Daniel Pearl. You might remember him as the amazing cinematographer that shot Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And of course went on to kind of become a Hollywood legend in his own right, but here still collaborating with Toby Hooper. He was one of his great collaborators, uh, special effects. They really, I, I think this is where most of the budget went in this film, honestly, is casting and special effects because they brought in Stan Winston Studios and John Dykstra to make these fucking awesome aliens who I think really kind of sell the movie. I think it really uh, drives everything home that you've got this kind of schlocky, campy sci-fi movie with the, the, the aliens look good and they're scary and they're gross. And, uh, you know, I think if that reveal falls flat, this movie kind of falls flat. Um, Stan Winston, you know, did Alien, did so many great, did Pumpkinhead. Uh, you're, you're never going to fucking go wrong with him. So while I'll agree that I think that the aliens look cool and stuff, like also it's like they both look cool and both are kind of like the sign that this is going to be kind of like a B-rated horror movie and the way they move around and stuff. Well, A, the first time you see the uh, the two aliens with the big mouths, you're like, somebody's going to get ate. Somebody's getting sucked down into that alien. Like, there's no way it's not going to happen. Look how they would have made his mouth that gigantic if they weren't going to do that. But up until the point that you see the aliens, like, it really kind of, like, you know, it seems like a fucking like Amblin movie where you're like, okay, you know, and you, this is how it's going. And then once you see the aliens, like, oh, okay, no, this is not, this is a different movie. Also, what about like the head alien? I gotta know. I, I should have done better research for this. I apologize. I've been a bit busy, as you might have been seeing lately, but, um, Fuck, uh, I really wanted to see if maybe they got the look for Krang from Ninja Turtles from this movie. Because the lead fucking brain-looking alien absolutely looks like Krang. I 100% thought the same thing. He, he looks a lot like Krang yeah, um, from the cartoon, for sure. So, food for thought. And well, the- it looks like um, he is most frequently seen in the 1987 animated series so yeah his first appearance was 1987 so possibly god i think so i think there has to be like i mean it looks exactly fucking like him this is a little fucking you know he had the little fucking arms and shit he had the fucking awesome mech suit that he lived in his stomach (laughs) uh fuck and then the music Talk about the music. Oh man, I think it's the strongest part of the whole fucking film. Christopher Young, composer of many great things. You want to see all the fucking legendary shit that dude's done? Go back to our Hellraiser episode because the beautiful, melodic, haunting, and iconic theme from Hellraiser was his first big hit. 
and he had many after that as a composer. And I just love the vibe of the score in this movie. It reminds me, uh, here's another deep cut for you motherfuckers, especially if you lived in the Southeast and you grew up there. I'm probably not, I'm probably so old that I'm outdating the people in this podcast. Opryland. Now it's a hotel. Used to be a fucking theme park. And I used to go there every summer because my aunt lived up there and it was a big highlight of my year. They had this fucking indoor roller coaster called Chaos. And like part of it was that you were like going up in a spaceship and shit and it was all trippy. And it had this like really haunting like synthy soundtrack. And that's what this fucking soundtrack reminded me of. And it gave me like the coolest fucking nostalgia um, I thought it just ruled, like, I'm going to go hunt that motherfucker down on Spotify and just rock it for mood music. I thought it was cool, and it also changed, like, once, it's like, once they show you the alien so early in the movie, the fucking score changes, because at the beginning, it's kind of like a, you know, a little bit lower budget, like, John Williams sounding score, like, just the the old classic, like, you know, this is America, everything is great, like, you know, music that would play when the families are out and stuff. So they, once they actually bring the aliens in and you go into their ship, like, they change the score completely. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I agreed 100% with that. This is a pretty star-studded cast for a canon film, so let's talk about it. Uh, headed up by Karen Black as Linda Magnuson, the school nurse. Uh, you can go back to our House of a Thousand Corpses episode to hear about the vast and impressive filmography of the legendary Karen Black, one of the all-time great screen, scream queens. Uh, of course, Mother Fly, Firefly in House of a Thousand Corpses, the uh, lady running from the Zuni fetish doll in Trilogy of Terror, and so much more. And uh, Karen Black's super over the top here. Like some of her lines are almost comically delivered, but I think she's like perfect in what they're going for for this movie. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like she thought that this was silly. <laughs> and yeah, and then played it as it. such. Yes, yeah, and like I said, she's probably a little bit more over the top than everybody, except for the general, who I'm sure we'll talk about. He's definitely on her level, too, um, but yeah, she definitely went for that, like, I'm in a silly movie, that's so how I'm going to play it, and yeah, I thought it worked pretty well. With such great lines as, you're not just a crazy kid, are you? <laughs> God damn it, that popped me huge. And then we had Hunter Carson as David Gardner, our child actor. Uh, did a great job here. He's, he was actually the son of Karen Black and uh, film director L.M. Kit Carson. In 1986, he was nominated for a Young Artist Award for starring performance by a young actor in a motion picture for the movie Paris, Texas, which was his first acting role in 1984. Um, that film was co-written by his father, and he got strong reviews for that film. This was What I'm his- hearing... Is that he is a nepo baby, like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> so this is his second movie, and then he was also in a 1988 comedy drama called Mister North, and then he played Bud Bundy in an unaired pilot of Married with Children. What a fun fact! And uh, he was also in the 2001 film Perfume. 
and played a crazy killer boyfriend in the 2010, 2010 horror film She's Crushed. Uh, he also co-directed a movie starring Kevin Sorbo. I bet that fucking sucked. And, uh... <laughs> God dang. Well, it's called Single in South Beach, so... Yeah, well, you could see, because nobody would want to be fucking romantically linked with that motherfucker. Um, <laughs> and then he also directed a short film in 2004 called With It, about a failed hitman. So, you know, this week been keeping on, keeping on. Nepo baby that stuck around, finding himself useful somehow. But no, in this movie, like, you know, he's, he's a pretty decent child actor from the 80s. I, I thought... He had to carry the majority of the film. You're with him. You're seeing kind of his point of view most of the movie. And I think he he carried it just fine. He was, you know, not like the creme de la creme of child actors of the 80s. But he was, was certainly not in the bottom tier. No, he did absolutely fine in this movie. A good job, I would even go so far as to say. Well, I'm going to give two slightly controversial takes here. One is that... um. You know, I don't really have a problem with nepotism. I think it's like a natural thing. You know, my parents couldn't do shit for me in that department. You know, nepotism didn't help Muji, Dan or Annie. But uh, I got a problem with it. And two, I don't think he was terrible, but I think they could have found a cuter kid. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Sure, but was that cuter kid the lead actress's son? No. No, exactly. There you go. There you go. I guess you, you can't be the fan of nepotism and also that. I guess. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, you're you're giving us contradictory statements here. Some mixed signals from the mooch. Yeah, I mean, you got to say though. I guess at least having his mom on set, probably you know, he was doing most of the scenes with her. It's probably makes it more comfortable for him, so easier to to have a better performance. I hope he called her Linda, like, for the rest of forever. Just every time. Just, Linda! Linda! Listen, Linda! Ugh, fuck. And then we had she Timothy... Was, oh, go ahead. She was, um... I gotta say, too, she was, um... That was a pretty sketchy move, like... She didn't need, like, a lot of, like, evidence to be like, okay, that's fine. I'll help, I'll, I'll help you run away. <laughs> Sounds great. There's aliens. Is... Fuck it. Let's go. Do you think that, that this kid is the first person that Linda helped fucking run away from home? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe not. She's like, I don't know enough to dispute anything that you're saying, so I'm going to choose to believe you. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. She was so easily bamboozled. It's pretty tough. I mean, it turned out it wasn't. I was going to say, we, I movie, would, like, can't call it bamboozled. Yeah, it it wasn't. It turned out to be true, but like you know, also, it you know it could be he could have not wanted to eat his vegetables, and I think that you know Linda might have also helped him fucking get on the bus to go to the next town. Lots, lots of lots of conspiracy theories here. And then we had uh, Timothy Bottoms as George Gardner, who was best known for playing the lead in Johnny Got His Gun. In 1971, that's the movie that fucking Metallica's one video is comprised of. 
fun fact. Um, Sonny Crawford in the last picture show in 1971 with Sybil Shepherd and Jeff Bridges. And he rose to fame from that film. And he was also in The Paper Chase in 1973 and the disaster film Roller Coaster in 1977. Honestly, that shit. And uh, he also played George W. Bush multiple times, including on the sitcom That's My Bush. Uh, he oh, also that show? Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> he was also in the comedy film Crocodile Hunter Collision Course. And the docudrama DC 9-11, Time of Crisis. Pretty good casting for a 50s-era-esque, like, basic suburban dad. He really had it down. And we had uh, Lorraine Newman as the mom, Ellen Gardner, um, famous comedian, part of the original Saturday Night Live cast from its inception in 1975 until she left the show in 1980. Um, she also became a founding member of the improvisational group, the groundlings in Los Angeles. She once studied mime under Marcel Marceau for a year in Paris. Um, she was actually first hired by Lauren Michaels for a Lily Tomlin TV special in 1974, which led to her getting the gig on Saturday night live. She created many characters on the show, like Connie Conehead, the proto Valley girl, Sherry, and Christy Christina. And in 2017, she and the rest of the original cast were among the honorees of the TV Academy Hall of Fame. She's been in many movies, such as Stardust Memories, Problem Child 2, Coneheads, and The Flintstones. She is also a voice actor with appearances in both TV shows and movies, including many Pixar films like Finding Nemo, Wally Up and Inside Out. And in her 2021 memoir, uh, May You Live in Interesting Times, uh, that came out on Audible in 2021. If you want to learn more about her life, she's also the younger sister of writer and musician Tracy Newman and the mother of actress and comedian Hannah Einbender. Uh, yeah, Lorraine Newman. I've always loved her. Uh, big fan of her ever since I was a little kid watching fucking Saturday Night Live reruns on Nick at Night with that original cast. I, you know, just, I was like, thought she was hilarious and cute and had a crush on her when I was like five. So fucking Lorraine Newman plays a great mom here. Uh, she's also one of the body snatched. So, you know, goes from being just kind of normal to kind of zombified fucking alien possessed mom in this as well. And then uh, we had James Karen. Returning, love fucking James Karen as General Climate Wilson. Uh, you can go back to our Poltergeist episode and learn more about James Karen, of course, Return of the Living Dad. Uh, we always mention he kind of plays an, an inept boss in most films or, you know, some sort of authoritarian figure. Um, and I thought he was just a fucking hoot in this, personally. Yeah, he was, like, really going for it the whole time. And then we had uh, Eric Pierpoint as Sergeant Major Rinaldi. Um, it occurred began in 1984 in the film Wind Windy City. Later that same year, he was cast in a short-lived television show called Hot Pursuit. Uh, he was in the TV show Fame. Uh, he was in the TV show Alien Nation in 1988. And uh, he would take over the role of Samuel Francisco on that show. 
The series was very popular with fans, but was canceled after one season. But he did go on to play the character in five subsequent Alienation TV movies from 1993 to 1997. He also had uh, five separate guest roles on all four Star Trek spinoffs and continues to work regularly outside of the science fiction genre, garnering many roles in popular films and TV shows, including the 1997 film Liar Liar, and the more recent TV shows, Heart of, Heart of Dixie and Parks and Recreation. And in addition to all of that, he was very active in the theater. So, Sergeant Major Rinaldi had a long career. And then we had Christopher Allport as Captain Curtis. His film credits include Savage Weekend, To Live and Die in L.A., Jack Frost, and Jack Frost 2, as well as Revenge of the Mutant Killer Snowman. He might be the only motherfucker on the planet to star in three movies about murderous snowmen. Uh, he was also in a movie called Garden Party, released in 2008, where he died shortly after that film was completed, because I guess there was a curse if you acted in three films about murderous snowmen. Was his death snowman related? I don't know. Hopefully not. He was also on a lot of TV. He was on X-Files, Commander-in-Chief, ER, Felicity, Mad Men, and Brothers and Sisters. And then we had uh, Donald Houghton as old NASA scientist, Kenneth Kimmons as Officer Kenny, as a guy with a long career. In 1976, he appeared in the film Network. He was in Hill Street Blues, Soap, Night Court, Archie Bunker's Place, The Fall Guy, Bob Newhart Show, Hunter, The Love Boat, Dynasty, WKRP in Cincinnati, Cheers! Remington Steel, Highway to Heaven, The West Wing, Silver Spoons, and L.A. Law. Motherfucker was on every big show of that era, just about. Uh, he, uh, long career. He was also in Coach with a recent person who was on this show, Craig T. Nelson. He wasn't actually on the show. We talked about him quite a bit in the Poltergeist episode. He was actually Craig T. Nelson's boss in Coach. He's also on Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. And his final credit was from the Broadway play The Music Man in the year 2000. And then we had Jimmy Hunt as the police chief. Um, he also appeared in films like Song of Love, Sorry, Wrong Number, Weekend with the Father, and many more, often opposite Gigi Perot. Uh, and then we had Louise Fletcher as Mrs. McKelch. Uh, you can see our episode on Firestarter in the Stephen King Terror Timeline season for more on that. And then apparently Vietnam War vet Dale Dye has a small role as the squad leader. And future stunt coordinator Scott Leva plays a Marine officer. And Joseph Anthony Cox appears in costume as a drone. And that is your cast. Shooting dates and locations. They shot it at the administration building in the Malibu Creek State Park. That's where the Gardner House was. Uh, the Eagle Rock Elementary School is where they shot the elementary school scenes. And the Harbor Star Stage in San Pedro is where the sets were located. They also used the Marine Corps Air Station in El Toro, California. And it was shot from July 10th of 1985 to November 20th of 1985. Wow, yeah, they used a real Marine Corps Air Station. That's odd and interesting. 
And with that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door. Okay, so um, a lot of people wondered, you know, kind of how they did some of these alien stunts. They made the creatures walk by using ski poles to move the longer arms, like when they salute Mrs. McKelch. Uh, The full-size performer would face the rear of the suit and had to walk backwards so that the creature's knee joints would bend in an inhuman fashion. Several actors performed the drones, working in shifts, which meant each performer who did the walking for the Martian needed his own custom footwear. And for the sequence where one of the Martians eats Mrs. McKelch, a special eating rig consisting just of the drone's head was built for the close-ups on a seesaw device so that it could throw its head back to swallow. A short burst from a hidden fire extinguisher provided the post-meal belch. It was a... Few shout-outs to the original movie. Jimmy Hunt, who played David McLean in the original Invaders from Mars, and the police chief in this remake actually has more than almost a dozen lines, just not one as re- not just one as reported by a reviewer. When he and Officer Keeney go up the hill in search of Mr. Gardner, his line of, gee, I haven't been up here since I was a kid, is a reference to the similar area of Martian activity that he witnessed as the boy in the 1953 movie. So if you've seen the original movie, there's a lot of shout outs. Uh, Near the beginning of the movie, when they're getting David ready for bed and moving stuff around in his room, the dad picks up a magazine. It was a a 70s sci-fi magazine called Fantasine. That issue had an article on the making of the original Invaders from Mars in 1953. Fantasy. It could have been about sci-fi. It could have been porn. Now we know. <laughs> Glad that's clarified. Uh, Stan Winston actually worked on this movie the same time he was working on Aliens. So he was living in the world of extraterrestrial monsters. The movie playing on the TV when David comes home from school is fucking Life Force from 1985 that we just talked about last week. Hey, man, they own the rights, so there you go. Apparently, during the final shootout, a fire broke out, but it was quickly contained and nobody was hurt. But the quick thinking led to the Supreme Intelligent being cut open to let the puppeteers out. So that's Supreme Intelligence is Krang. I see. Further supporting our fucking theories. Yes, a.k.a. he's a brain. The portrait on the wall, which you do notice behind General Wilson, is of Lieutenant General Chesty Puller, the most highly decorated Marine of all time. And his name was Chesty. It's like Chesty Puller could have been in Fantazine had it not been a (laughs) sci-fi magazine. God damn it, Muji. The school that David goes to is W.C. Menzies School, which is a reference to the director of the original movie, William Cameron Menzies. For the remake rights to this film, Wade Williams received over 50 times the amount he paid. He already made a very handsome profit from the original film, TV, cable, and video releases. Only two Martian drone suits were made for the production. This is the most noticeable in the scenes where the Marines encounter drones in the tunnels leading to the ship. Clever editing and the use of a fully sculpted and painted but not mechanized lighting stand-in drone created the illusion of multiple Martian drones on the ship. Early on in development, apparently Steven Spielberg was going to direct this, or at least was in talks, but he went on to do his own shit with extraterrestrials. Apparently the size of the drones was an issue. Um, They were cumbersome. They were hard to move around. Uh, They had these big fiberglass molds. Um, 
they they had to keep them wet and slimy looking so they had what was called an octo injector which was a big five gallon bucket had multiple hoses coming out of it and six of them would sit around and mix up the polyfoam and then dump it into this thing um so they got their skins out they were they were good um like they you know they kept running into problems and fixing them so uh, Howard Berger was part of that. He said they were in a small room running giant pieces with little ventilation. On their lunch breaks, they'd lie right on top of the big bodies they were making because they were soft and cushy, but also secreting cyanide gas. So we'd be lying there going, I don't feel so good. And it was for making all of this stuff. Uh, we knew it was toxic stuff, but we'd say, hey, look, gas is coming out of the polyfoam. But, you know, we were young and stupid. We didn't take precautions. <laughs> Rock and roll special effects. That's what I like. They use actual Marines as extras in the scenes where the Marines invade the school. Apparently the scanning device that Bud Court uses in the elementary school is the same prop used by Savick in Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. A lot of reused props on this, I do believe. The concept designs for the cave interiors were heavily influenced by H.R. Geiger's techno-porn designs from the original Alien. In a film filled with homages to earlier science fiction movies, director Hooper chose not to use Bronson Cave for the entrance to the alien cavern. Bronson Cave and Canyon was used for countless sci-fi movies going back 50 years. Despite its failure in most other aspects, the film has become a cult classic over the years. Stan Winston said he used a lot of what he learned by working on the alien queen suit to create the alien invader suits for this film. He said he didn't want it to look like a guy in a suit, so he came up with the idea of putting a little person on the back of a big guy who would stand and walk backward. The intention was to hide the man in the suit approach by positioning two performers inside the drone. So because of the budget of the film, the drone had to be a guy in a suit ultimately, but he did everything that he could so it wouldn't look like it. 1986 was a big year for Hooper, so the third of his three-picture deal is about to come out later in the year. We'll talk more about that soon. For the Supreme Being that was conceived as a giant brain on legs, they built a puppet featuring a lizard tail and an animatronic face with layers of bladders inside to simulate a breathing motion. He said it was just chaos trying to get all that work done. What? See, a giant brain on legs sounds familiar. Definitely does. Toby Hooper's favorite drink was Dr. Pepper. He was religious about him. He sweared by him. And he certainly had to sneak one in the film when David gets one out of the fridge. I can relate. In the scene where Lorraine Newman's, Newman and Timothy Bottoms' necks explode, the spark caught Lorraine Newman's hair on fire and singed a large part of it. She did not realize this until afterwards. A lot of fire hazards in this film. Yeah. And at the very end of the movie, we have, I wanted to hate this ending initially, and then they do the double swerve. It was like, okay. Uh, where, you know, he wakes up, and it's all a dream, and then he goes in his parents' room after seeing the spaceship land again, and then he sees something that horrifies him. He screams, and we're out. Uh, you can clearly hear the sound of the Martians in the background, but like, are they eating his parents? Are they they his? Are they his parents? Like, what has happened? We don't know, but we know something horrible has happened to end the film. And I also did pop for Lorraine Newman using the fucking conehead voice at the end of the movie when she was pretending to be an alien, and you know, of course. 
There's implications that it might be all a dream, but the last swerve tells you possibly otherwise. You don't know. It's a 50 sci-fi movie remade in 1985, so all bets are off. So speaking of, how did it do? Let's look at the numbers. Numbers of the Numbers of the Beast movie was released on June the 6th of 1986. The budget was reportedly $7 million and box office was 4.9. So it, uh, it lost, it lost some money. Not a, a, another box office success for Canon, I'm afraid. I don't know how many of those they had. Probably not a lot. So, yeah, it didn't do great. Uh, it opened in seventh place. It earned, uh, you know, not quite its budget. So that's always unfortunate. Uh, the reception critical was not good either. Uh, they shed all over it. The New York Times said that Toby Hooper knows how to construct a horror film. So it builds to a screaming. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. I, I, I saw nothing but that it was panned critically. So I go into this expecting the first review to be terrible, and it actually seems like it's good. Uh, it says that Hooper knows how to construct a horror film, so it builds to a screaming pitch. It has an excellent cast, but thought that the Martians being revealed made the film less terrifying, and that we get lost in the complexities of the inventions, and it seems overdone and overproduced. So that wasn't too bad. But then Variety just shit in its mouth that it was an embarrassing combination of kitsch and boredom. Um, and Dan O'Bannon actually helped on that screenplay. I forgot to mention that again. But uh, so that it was a reasonable idea. But him and Don Jacoby's inferior screenplay fails to bring in new ideas or provide interesting dialogue. The story elements have been done to death in the interim. Chicago Tribune gives it three out of four stars. So as much of what is lovable about Hooper's fun, scary, and silly, refreshing, refreshingly silly movie is all of the in-jokes. Michael Wilmington of the LA Times said if you can tap into Hooper's oddball rhythms and cold send-ups, you can enjoy yourself. He thought the uh, 1953 movie was effective, but not really the classic that people remember. He said everything in the remake is better except for the production designs, the acting, the camera work, and definitely the Martians. May not grip audiences the same way, but because Hooper is trying something harder, a conscious campiness that's tough to pull off. Uh, the Washington Post said that despite its occasional sparkle, it's an overlong movie with a tiny spirit. Ouch. So yeah, lot, lots of negative reviews. There's several more. I'm not going to just fucking keep beating the dead horse here. But it does hold a 38% on Rotten Tomatoes currently. Um, nominated for two awards at the seventh Golden Raspberries, including Worst Supporting Actress and Worst Visual Effects. Ouch. And really no kind of legacy to speak of, other than there was a novelization that was released by horror novelist Ray Garten by Pocket Books. And that's a, about all you got as far as anything spun off of this movie. Uh, but, if you want to own it yourself, you certainly can. Annie can tell you where to find it. So it was released first on VHS in 1986 in Canada, and then in 1989 in the United States. Um, it was first released on DVD in 1997 from MGM Home Video, and then in 
April of 2015, Screen Factory, under license from MGM, released it on Blu-ray. Um, and as far as anything since then, a 4K re-release is actually due to release this year on July 11th. So really soon, or possibly already out, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, but it's brand new coming out. And it is currently available to stream on Tubi and Pluto and other various places with commercials, but free. All right. Well, that's going to wrap things up for Invaders from Mars. Aside from our final motherfucking thoughts. And I had a good time with this one. I appreciated what he was going for. It was not a like super take itself seriously movie everything was pretty tongue-in-cheek um had kind of good 80s movies vibes had fun 50 sci-fi vibes uh had those like it was shot on old sets kind of feel about it loved the soundtrack loved the effects the acting was pretty you know campy but i think that was a choice in most cases um i think this movie's kind of underrated honestly maybe a little long like it, it can maybe trim 15 minutes but um but uh, but a fun little romp i thought yeah it was all right um not gonna watch this movie again um it was the theme of the movie to me felt like reduce reuse recycle um a lot of things looked very familiar but not where you could place them um like a lot of this, like, it seemed like they showed up to the studio and there was some already put together sets and they're like, we can make that work. We will be using that. Thank you. Um, we spent all of our money on the aliens, um, which is fine. Um, but uh, it was it was also unintentionally hilarious um, a few times. Um, like the line that I used at the opening of the episode about getting sucked under the sand um made me stop what i was doing and double over in laughter um so it had that going for it but yeah it was fine overall i thought it was pretty fun um you know you can definitely tell like the some of the limitations you know of its budget obviously um special effects i felt like were hit or miss like some of them looked really cool some of them you know were not as good but you know the tone of it I think that's probably one of the reasons that people didn't like it as much back in the day is that um, they don't actually kind of establish the over the top tone until the aliens, you know, they show the aliens, you know, which is like, I think it's like 40 minutes into the movie, you know, it was kind of playing it like a standard, just like 80s, like, you know, kids adventure movie until then. So, um, but yeah, like I said, man, there's enough like silly stuff going on there and, um, you know, I'm just a big sucker for these types of movies. So, had fun. Outstanding. Well, we're going to traipse back into familiar territory next week here on the Toby Hooper Terror Timeline. We don't have a ton of these left. Kind of surprising that this movie came so late in it, honestly. But um, it's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes, isn't it? So, we will be returning to... A familiar story and set of characters next week on the show. We will have Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 
on the next episode of Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. The Seeking Human Victims podcast is a product of One Good Scare Productions. It is written, edited, researched, and directed by Dan Wilson, with assistance by Fuji Grant and Annie Wilson. Original music is provided by Shredderford, as well as K.D. Grant. All other music and audio clips are property of their respective owners.